welcome to Breakfast with Jesus, uh, which is uh, the channel that I use um, um, to share more regularly um, some of the, the conversation and meditations that uh, Anne and I have together. So Tony Goldsby-Smith is my name, for those who haven't uh, heard this one before. And uh, Breakfast with Jesus is a channel of the Gospel Conversations Forum. Uh, in the last Breakfast with Jesus episode, I looked at Jeremiah 32, which is a, a big chapter um, with a very um, nuanced story of Jeremiah buying a field. And I said we'd do it in two halves. So this is now the second half of that, that talk. And um, it's worth recalling the overall framing um, that I gave in talk one, which was A, that eschatology is very important, and B, that in most of the evangelical and modern frameworks of the gospel, it is a poor cousin. It's not well developed. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that I think the essence, the, the, it, it, the more I uh, marinate my mind in the gospel, the more I can see that eschatology is not some kind of um, appendix at the end of it all. It's actually uh, the framework of the, of, of the message of the gospel. The gospel is by nature an eschatology. The entire gospel is because it is, a, it is really um, a message of hope reframing the present. What do I mean by saying that um, a lot of modern Christian thinking sidelines it. It's quite ironic because, um, in a way, it, it's got more and more emphasis. You know, in, in the um, in the modern era, with um, the prediction theology of evangel evangelicalism, often in America, um, well, it sidelines it because it turns it into end times and end times. Um, uh, theory and that that's all that eschatology is it's a prediction of the end and um, I mentioned uh, Maltman's great book The Theology of Hope uh, and Maltman was not predicting the end he, he, he was critiquing um, minimalist views of eschatology and his view his uh, helpful view is that eschatology is a transformative vision of the future that transforms the present. So with that in mind, let's look now more closely at Jeremiah buying the field. Uh, just to recall, um, Jeremiah was the prophet of doom. Um, and at, at the time of this particular prophecy, uh, you didn't need to have much foresight to see what was happening. Babylon was, was uh, surrounding, outnumbering uh, Jerusalem. And it was... Um, its downfall was imminent. And at, at that particular time, Jeremiah buys a block of land as a kinsman redeemer. So at face, he didn't have to do that. This was a voluntary act. You, the kinsman redeemer laws did not force uh, uh, the relative to act on behalf of the impoverished cousin. It was an act of choice, but he did it anyway. And uh, it was... It, from 
a circumstantial point of view, it was an act of folly because um, uh, the value of land was, um, in the words of Falstaff, you could buy land as cheap as stinking mackerel because no one wanted to buy land uh, at that time. But it's a very um, powerful analogy of the logic of hope. He bought the land on the logic, not of what was present, but what the future was. So how, how can we explore this uh, scriptural analogy um, to learn more about the mindset of hope and how it works? Let me begin by, um, I think what's a conventional way of interpreting this, and I actually heard an extended um, sermon um, which was um, completely developed within this paradigm, which is the paradigm of self-denial. In other words, the, um, the buying of the block of land is an analogy of acts of self-denial we do because we want to invest in eternity and in the future. And so um, the examples that in this particular sermon included giving money to missionaries sacrificially. Um, it included um, choosing full-time ministry over a more lucrative secular vocation um, and, and having therefore a vocation with less money and uh, less prestige. It included the choice uh, in marriage to choose, uh, make your decisions for marriage based upon I'm marrying a Christian versus not a Christian, etc., etc. So these were acts of self-denial which at face value seemed to deny me some benefit. In Why? Because I'm investing in the future. What's wrong with that? Well, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be completely critical because I mean, it's very true that an eschatological mindset could well involve acts of self-sacrifice. I'm not saying that isn't the case, but I'm saying it's not the heart of the matter. It's not the heart of the matter. And it's rather dangerous because um, all of these examples work within a high road, low road, um, polarization of human action. Some things are religious and some things are not. Um, it, the examples don't involve any transformation. Um, they don't need to involve any transformation. I'm just denying myself something in order to look forward to a future. So I don't think they're getting to the heart of the matter. We can do better. And I want to do better by saying, let's look at this buying of the, uh, of the land as an act of worship. Now, worship's another word that I think does need renovation. Um, and, uh, and I think the, the, um, the analogy of buying the block of the land does help us to renovate the word worship. Um, so by worship, I, I'm going to define worship as acting today on the logic of hope, where I want to bring the reality of hope into the present. Um, now, uh, the, I think the, one of the most, if not the most powerful uh, New Testament expositions of worship is Romans 12. Uh, now in Romans 12, Paul says, Chapter 1, sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I implore you by God's mercies to present your bodies as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, your rational worship, and do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by renewal of the intellect, 
so you may test the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the heart of this is to reconfigure our lives as, as acts of worship, rational worship. Um, what does he mean by that? Does he mean self-denial? And I'm, I'm going to say, no, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, um, he means symbolically buying blocks of land. What, what do I mean by this? Well, the word worship, um, the English word worship has got five Greek words um, that it draws on. Um, and, and they're very different. Uh, they do range from um, uh, a word proskuneo, which is an act of homage and reverence, to the word used in Romans, latruo, which means more something like service. So, it, it, so in other words, it, it, it moves from the, the traditional view of worship, which would be going to a church in a cathedral, a religious action of ritual, singing prayer and praise. Yes, that's there. But the word used here, Latruo, is, is actually much more to do with public service. It's, it's not Sunday, it's Monday, Monday to Friday um, that's in view in Romans 12. And there's a, a helpful note on worship um, by Vine, um, uh, in which he says it's nowhere defined in Scripture, which um, actually is in itself probably instructive. Um, and it's, it's therefore not confined to praise. Broadly, he said it may be regarded as a direct acknowledgement to God of his nature, his attributes, his ways and his claims in all of life, whether by outgoing of heart in praise or by deeds. So we need to take this word worship and spread it out. It's got to be, it's got to actually be very much broader than just what we would typify as religious observances. And I think it's really helpful to, to view it as an outworking of an eschatology mindset, to see all things in a new way and as a result to act differently. And it is specifically seeing things and acting in the logic of hope in present circumstances. Now, these actions, all actions that please God must begin in a renewed mind, which Paul talks about in Romans 12. It's no good just mimicking something. Uh, you know, we get, uh, we get stereotypes if that's the case. Um, but our mind is renewed. Uh, the now is transformed in our minds by hope. Um, so... The buying of the, of the land is typifying actions on the logic of Jesus Christ as the future Lord of all creation. The buying of the land says we're not to escape this world, but reclaim it and its destiny. So if the buying of the land is an act of worship, um, let's begin with the action and, and explore what this action means, this worship action, where I'm with a transformed mind, I'm reconceiving almost everything, almost everything. Um, and, and Jeremiah 32 is really useful as a piece of literature because you actually do have quite a lot of detail about the action, but equally you've got 
um, detail about Jeremiah's mindset through his prayer. Uh, but let's begin, let's begin with, the, with the action. And the critical point about this metaphor or analogy in the buying, the buying of the land is that the land uh, he traded would be the same land that he inherited in the new era. It's not as if his hope was to hope of going somewhere else. <laughs> it was to have this land, this land, this block of land renewed under a new system. Um, and, and that is incredibly instructive. That getting our minds around that is really the heart of this transformed mindset that I think is implied in Romans 12. Um, and the second thing, the second thing about the block of land is the block of land was a synecdoche for the whole promised land. So he wasn't doing it merely for the block of land. The block of land was a metaphor. Synecdoche is just a type of metaphor where the part represents the whole. Actually, it was the whole of the promised land of Israel, which would be renewed. And by the way, um, the promised land of Israel is in itself a synecdoche for the whole earth. And so rather than viewing heaven or eschatology or hope as something alien, you know, transported to a new land, it's the heart of it is a new vision of the present land that is going to be refurbished by resurrection power. You begin your imagination of the future or you ground your imagination of the future in the present. This is emphasized um, um, in the Lord's explanation of the symbolic act. You know, he says in verse 44, in the future, fields will be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin. So, so what is being refreshed, what's being renewed, what's being hoped for is not um, religious. You know, the, the, the vision of the future is not... Um, restored priesthood, rebuilt temple. It's actually commerce. Um, it's not a religious act, the buying of land, but it's an act of just generic human enterprise. And this purchase involved law, for instance. I mean, it's quite detailed about the documentation. Um, it involved agriculture. The land was you know, farming land to be used. It involved trade and commerce. So the the future vision uh, was not a departure from these things, but a renewal of these things. And that, th that keeping a hold of that truth, this is the same land refurbished, I think opens the door to the eschatological mindset. So it tells us that our hope is not leaving the earth behind for a new environment, which is heaven, but a transformation of the present into a new shape. And that transformation will be by the resurrection, animating power, uh, the animating power of the resurrection. Uh, well, what 
are our you know, blocks of land, what are our blocks of land that we would have an eschatological mindset on. Really, the, the only limit to this is our spiritual imagination. That's the only limit. Um, I think, in a way, our growth can be charted by how our imagination starts to see and recognise in more and more things, in all things, the presence and promise of God. So hope is a growing, ongoing work is what I'm saying. But to be, look, to be practical, I think there are four big areas I could mention that I have found certainly my mind transformed. So the first is relationships. Um, and the second one is professional life, and the third one is public life, and the fourth one's the environment. So these are areas where we can see the world being refurbished. Um, relationships is uh, really, really practical. Um, I don't know about you, but there are people I like and people I don't like. And without getting specific, some of the people I don't like, I don't like for good reason. They're, they're, you know, there are people whose lives I think are broken and twisted and they've hurt other people and um, there doesn't seem to me to be any prospect of them being changed in this world. My natural inclination with people like that is to be, even if I'm polite to them, I mean, I will be polite, is I actually withdraw from them. I don't really engage with them. I might be in the room with them, talking to them, but really I'm somewhere else. And insofar as I think about them, it's contemptuously. And it's not as if the contempt is not without very good reason. Um, I used to find that depressing and uh, not transformative. As I grasped more and more of the hope mentality, I began to criticise myself and say, no, no, your job, if you want to be an agent of hope in this situation, is to see this person as they are in the image of God and will be in the future, way beyond the vision they've got for themselves. And, and that, I think, is just a, a very ongoing challenge for us. It's a challenge for us if we're a teacher. Uh, we see people in their potential. The potential, uh, not framed merely according to the horizon of human achievement, but framed according to the horizon of resurrection and conformity to the image of God in Christ. Um, another area for me where, where you know, I see that the... the, the the future in relationships and the hope in relationships is, is marriage. And I think Paul does that in Ephesians when he talks about marriage through the lens of um, the mystery of Christ. That, that would be a perfect example. Here's Ephesians 5, very well-known passage, of course, of what I could call hope. In other words, he's seeing a relationship that is common and fundamental to human activity He's seeing that through a new lens as actually a great mystery, a great mystery. And in a way, the, that captures the mindset of hope. It, 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 you could almost, 
imagine an Ephesians 5 for all sorts of things other than marriage, it's a great mystery. It might look like this, but actually I'm talking about Christ, actually. And so the eschatological mindset would be able to have a transformative vision of everything as containing a mystery that's full of promise. So that's relationships. Professional life is really uh, the most practical one. Um, as you know, in gospel conversations, we've really been advocates of the faith, the faith at work movement. Um, I think it's a very good movement, but the, the real danger for it, which I see as probably the, uh, the area where it's got to go further, furthest, uh, sorry, where it's got to take a new approach, is that it tends to be just transactional, not transformational. In other words, um, faith at work means I import my traditional Christian thinking into the workplace. I try and hold Bible studies or I be ethical or, or what have you. This is not transformative. And um, we've had examples of, we've talked about this in gospel conversations. I think the, 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 the most powerful and succinct would be Tony Morgan um, when he, Tony um, spent his life um, in the world of insurance um, and not just any life, he was the president of the Insurance Institute of Australia, so a thought leader in the industry. But only in the latter, you know, his latter time in the industry did the lights turn on and he, he resaw the whole profession, the whole system as an echo of the divine and the future. And he's written a book on that. He's just doing an, another edition of it. And um, we'll certainly make that available through gospel conversations. But it's to see everything I do. It could be mathematics. It could be science. For me, it's um, technology and, and startups and knowledge. It could be law. It could be nursing. Um, I see these things in a new way. I see them as uh, through the lens of hope. Um, now, how, how you do that is art, not science, because it's not as if there's just a simple way of doing that. It's a growing revelation that will allow us to speak differently in these professional situations. Not, with, not by the way, through the lens of ethics and criticism, but through the lens of, of hope and um, promise. The third one is public life. This is a dangerous one um, because again, I think in politics, the advance of the Christian right has been an awful thing. But nonetheless, uh, we are invited, I think, to have a transformed view of human systems. Um, and we're going to, in gospel conversations, as an example, shortly uh, interview Matthew Clark, who's got very strong views on um, efforts to end the slavery trade, the modern slavery trade, and, and viewing that through a, a lens of hope. And the final one is, is, the, is the environment. So these would be examples of you know, blocks of land, in other words, where I see something in the present in a very different way through the lens of hope, and then I act according to that new logic. Um, well, look, uh, that's the action. Um, it's really worthwhile looking at the mindset behind the action, which is captured in Jeremiah's prayer halfway through the chapter. 
I, I won't go into it in detail, but it's really worth reading because what you see in Jeremiah's prayer, how does Jeremiah's prayer begin? He's confused initially, but he, he does not immediately see the lot. He, he, he's aware that his action of buying the land is anomalous and contradictory. So he has a discussion with God about it. But how does he pray? He doesn't begin with the circumstances. He begins with creation. That that's his opening words. Our Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That is very instructive for this eschatology of hope. The, the mindset of hope begins with the beginning, not the end. And there, if there would be one um, insight I could offer as to how to cultivate uh, this eschatological thinking, this is it. It begins with the beginning not the end. The richer your view of creation, the richer your view of the end. And then his prayer exemplifies that. You'll also notice in Jeremiah's prayer that, yes, it's about Israel, but the scope keeps broadening to all the ends of the earth. He says that. He says, um, uh, he says that, uh, you know, you've shown your wonders to all mankind. So his view of God is universal in scope. And the third thing you'll notice is that his vision of the actions of God begins with the steadfast love. It's the steadfast love that frames everything, including his judgments. Um, so that prayer is really useful for us as to, as to how we can pray to develop this um, mindset of hope in, in, in circumstances. Um, and uh, the chapter ends with God's, God's answers, not Jeremiah's prayer, and God's answers are a, an affirmation of his unconditional promise uh, to uh, renew all things, to renew all things. So that's the kind of mindset that we see in this buying of a block of land. Um, that's the kind of mindset that I think is the challenging mindset that should characterize us as Christians. Um, this mindset of eschatology uh, reforming how we see the present and act in the present according to how all things, the, the end of all things, the promised end of all things. Um, and as I said, it doesn't, it's not like a formula, it's actually more like a seed that can grow in our minds. So uh, I, I, hope, I hope you find it useful to use this analogy of the buying of the block of land um, just in your own thought life. Um, I certainly have. I, I, I always find it quite inspiring um, uh, when, I'm, when I've got a block or you know, I'm in a situation that feels pretty untransformed to remember uh, Jeremiah and the buying of the block of land.